Welcome to Theory of Paranormal. I am your host, Pax, with my teammate, Dalton. This is episode six, and today we're going to be discussing uh, some locations that are our favorite locations and give some reasons why uh, both of us really enjoyed investigating these places. Yes, sir. How you doing tonight? Today? This afternoon? Tomorrow. Good morning. It <laughs> <laughs> just depends on where you're listening to us. Um, yeah, we were going to do like 50 states and pick some out, but we decided it'd probably be too long. And then we decided we might do five, because I did post on the page that we were going to talk about 50 states and haunted places, but we're just going to pick a few haunted places um, that we're going to talk about that we enjoyed investigating, I guess, like a little free-for-all type deal. Correct. So, if you want to go ahead and start us off there, Dalton, uh, what do you got for us today? Going to the bluegrass state. Bluegrass state of Kentucky. Kentucky. There we go. Yes. We're going to start with the Octagon Hall. It's a good place to investigate. What can you tell us about Octagon Hall there, Dalton? Octagon Hall is right there, Franklin, Kentucky. It's right above the border of Tennessee there on 65. It is a two story octagon shaped house. Um, it's got a huge high basement in it. The. Actual plan, they say it was likely in, inspired by the Fowlers in 1848. The house is shaped like an octagon, of course. And over in England, they used to build these houses, and it was for air conditioning. So they would open the windows, and you know, if, if you got a window on every octagon side, you open the windows, you get the crosshair. Yep. Okay, so Jackson... Uh, Andrew Caldwell, in 1847, he laid out the foundation for a distinctive new family home. And he was going to live there with his wife, Harriet, and his daughters, which one of them happens to be Mary, who moves the ball for us in the video on the Facebook Theory Paranormal page. Nice. She's the one that uh, was dancing around the fire and her dress caught on fire and she burned to death. So, um, during the Civil War, well, this house was finished in 1859, 1860. It was, it was, uh, pretty much done prior to the Civil War. His brother was a colonel in the Confederate Army. So um, most of them, you know, con prominent Confederate folks. And because the house was uh, basically historic, historically known on uh, Nashville Road, um, the Confederate Army evacuated Bowling Green, which was the Confederate capital of the state of Kentucky, on February 1862. And they camped here the first night. And in the best estimation from the military record somewhere between eight to 10,000 men camped on these grounds. The officers probably stayed in the house overnight, which would have been very common because of its Confederate leanings. Now, the interesting part about it was the union army, the union army came shortly in pursuit of the Confederate army. The union army 
was really not in a hurry to confront the Confederate forces. They waited for two days before arriving at the Octagon Hall. So they waited a while. Sounds like it. And, of course, the family was mistreated, and and um, they killed all their cattle and stuff, especially their favorite cow, Old Spot. Oh, no. Yes. So they ate, every, they ate everything in sight. They were eating everything on the property. Another thing about this was it was actually, um, well, the Union Army, they didn't, they, they kept going around doing whatever, and Caldwell had, had enough brass. He basically called their bluff and said, go right ahead, because they basically um, took the cattle carcasses and threw them into the well so that the burnt, so to, that the water could be contaminated, forcing the family to get their water elsewhere. Okay, so they threatened to burn burn them down the property, the house, and so Caldwell said, "Go ahead, go right ahead. My brother just left, and he'll come back looking for you." Basically, is what he said. Needless to say, the Union Army didn't burn the house down. So it was a, it actually turned into basically a hospital, and what happened was. Every time the Union troops would come around, they they actually, believe it or not, I believe they actually um, helped both Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers. And so what would happen is when the Union soldiers would come around, here's a kind of an interesting thing. They had little hiding places they would put the Confederate soldiers in. One of the things they used to do was in the Coppola, Coppola, whatever it's called. Sorry, I can't pronounce it right. Um, basically it burned, it was burned and never replaced. They just repaired the roof on it. And, um, what he did anyway, whenever the union soldiers would open the trap door to that place, the, he, he had bees down there. He would purposely keep bees down there. So when they would open the door, the bees would be swarming around and they would not go in and look. And what he did was he took the Confederate soldiers that were hiding there and he put them in bee suits and then stuck them down in there with the bees to hide them from the Union troops, which is I thought was pretty clever. So there were some other hiding places um, that they had and there was a tunnel. I don't know how far the tunnel went, but there was a tunnel under the house that went from under the house and it went across the property. Now this property, you can imagine this octagon house sitting in the middle of the property. And then you had the slave quarters, uh, sitting back there in the back. And then the, uh, the barn was out to the right kind of thing. Okay. Now on this property, you had two, I believe it was two Confederate soldiers that passed. One passed of, uh, I best, I, I'm going to say he was in there to get help, and he passed a gunshot. Whatever his wounds were, he passed away. And the other one, um, I'm trying to remember how he passed. But anyway, he passed away as well. And... Both of those soldiers are sworn to be buried on that property. Really? Yes. It's interesting. 
Yes, it is. So it is a place that I've investigated. Like I said, Little Mary, when we got there, uh, Little Mary, she pretty much told me she wanted to play. So we went to her room, and that's where we got her to move the ball. Now, in other areas of the house, we got some pretty good evidence there. Um, some good EVPs and stuff. But one of the cool things was was that we went out to the barn and in the barn that's where the Confederate troops, the guards, whoever was guarding the property, they would basically go out there and play poker. Hey, I like poker. I'm, uh, pr- I'm, pr- I'm pr- pretty good. Pretty and, good. Uh, yeah. You know, getting a few flushes and, and straights and all that good stuff. Right. So um, we had a guy there. There was a, that's I was doing that investigation with some important people. I'm not going to name drop anybody, but um, anyway, so the guy put poker cards and chips out there, and supposedly we we were supposed to, we we left, and of course they overlooked their evidence. We didn't ever put a camera out there. We probably should have, but we were told that. Um, the basis was that some of the cards moved and some of the poker chips moved out there and they had got it on film. Haven't seen the footage ever, but was told by a liable source that they caught some action on film. And the house is very unique. It's full of uh, like Civil War swords, you know, swords that the officers might carry and all that stuff. And it was told that Caldwell, being that he was uh, prominent because his brother was a colonel, that they buried a bunch of gold down there, like Confederate gold, down in this tunnel. Well, you know what happens when anytime there's any type of treasure anywhere. (laughs) Everybody's a professional with all their spelunking gear. Right. So it's it's kind of funny cuz they're like, "Hey, we you know, they tried to go down there. There's a big portion of the tunnel, I think, that uh that hasn't been opened." And so they don't really know like the parts that have been opened, there was nothing there. Really? Nothing at all? Well, like some old paintings and stuff. Okay. That's that's actually in the house, I believe now. So the house is the house has a lot of original Civil War stuff that was there at the house at the time of the war that was just left there. And because because back then in 1954, um, a Dr. Williams moved from Nashville and made the Octagon Hall his residence. Hmm. Oh, until his death. I'm sorry, until his death in 1954 at the time. And then the, the Octagon Hall was made rental property. And... Then they created the Octagon Hall Foundation, was formed, and obtained the building in 2001. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So dedicated to the restoration and uh, preservation of the only eight-sided house in Kentucky, Hmm. the Octagon Hall Foundation is furthering its efforts on its past future. So be interesting to see 
in the time that I was there to maybe what they'd done um, since then. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Restorations always drum up a lot of wonderful things to happen. And It, uh, it does. Remember, we did the Roth home, and the guy was remodeling the whole house, and then the activity was crazy. So anytime there's any things like that, um, you know, you're going to get a lot of good stuff. But Andrew Caldwell, the original builder, you know, he died in 1866. And his widow, Harriet, she lived in there until selling the house to Williams in 1918. Okay. So, but they had a, they had a pretty good sized family. And uh, like I said, little Mary, it's a tragic death for her. Um, she was down in the summer, I guess they call it a summer kitchen. But they all cooked over an open fireplace. So basically, um, she was dancing around and, and her dress caught on fire, and she burned to death. Oh, that's sad. It's very sad. Very, very sad. So, the Octagon Hall, to me, is was probably one of my most interesting. We did get some some decent EVPs out at the uh, slave quarters, slave house, whatever you want to call it. I don't like really using the term slave, but that's what it is. Um, so... The most activity we had was actually in the house itself. And there's there's bedrooms. You you would think an eight-sided house would be pretty big. And it's actually, it's kind of like going to Elvis's mansion. You would think that would be huge. And when you get there, it's kind of small. Yeah. You know, so this octagon hall is the same same kind of concept. Okay. Um. But yeah, man, that's... uh. That's all there is for that for me. Do you got any questions on that? Or as as far as it goes with that, anything notable that you really noticed about it, or it stood out to you? As far as just investigating anything in particular, where you're like, "Hey, this is different," or you know, compared to other stuff, this really stands out. You know, because each location has different things that really make it pop or sets them apart from other places. I didn't know if there's anything that stood out to you. Besides the shape of the house? Correct. Um, there was a lot of uh, strong energy there. Um, like I said, for the little girl... I think I want to say she was seven, eight years old or something. She was pretty young. So for her to spark up enough energy to move a ball, that kind of interested me. Um, we kind of went through a bunch of our photos, and I believe we caught some. I don't think I ever posted. There is some photos on the Theory Paranormal page of me walking through the the actual house. So you can actually go to the facebook page and actually see some photos of what the interior of the house looked like and all the stuff they had up if i remember correctly it was pretty <clears> old pretty old looking yeah but it was pretty good pretty good shape you know they kept it in pretty good shape and then they you know hung everything on the walls and then they got display cases and stuff that they put the swords some of the swords that were left behind from the officers and the guns but 
I think besides the energy, man, I think just knowing the history that both Union and Confederate troops were were helped there. It was a hospital. So it became a hospital, actually. And even though they were hiding Confederate troops from the Union troops, I think it's kind of interesting that the that Mr. Caldwell, being a Confederate guy, was helping Union troops. So it didn't matter to you know it didn't matter to the family if you were wounded. It didn't matter where you you were a human being and you were wounded. I I would have to give them props for that. For for taking care of both sides. Well, I mean, you know, the best part of of life is. No matter what's going on in the world, I believe personally uh, that I can lend credence from when I served in the military, traveling around the world, there was a lot of situations I was in. It didn't make a difference who you honed your allegiance to. It was about, at particular times, taking care of just the fellow person, making sure that they're okay, making sure that things were taken care of. Um, and I mean if you put it in context back then that was a very turbulent time it was for everybody well and then and then you could look at it this way too you know they were confederate supporters his brother was a colonel in the confederate army um it served as a hospital for both confederate and union soldiers but it also doubled as a hideout for confederate troops on the run from the union army so if you look at it that way they might have been helping the Union Army fix their guys so they wouldn't really pay attention to the Confederate troops being hidden downstairs in the B, in the B room. You see what I'm saying? Yep. But still, to actually suck it up and take care of the opposing force and heal them, fix them, band them, and whatever, to be able to do that, and then, you know, not wanting to say yeah, we're going to help you and then wind up killing those guys because they're Union troops. No, they helped them and sent them on their way. So that was that was pretty cool. Definitely a good story there. Yeah, it's there's more to it, but uh, we can talk about it some other time. But anyway, what did you have in mind? What was one of your favorite places to uh, talk about? One of my favorite places to talk about is a little-known location called Casadega. 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 And, uh, Home of the mediums and psychics. Yep. And it's in Florida. And the thing that sets this location apart compared to other locations is depending on where you go, who you speak with, where you research, who you talk to, it's going to be coined as the spiritual capital of the world. Really? Yep. Hmm. The whole premise of this location was uh, ultimately... At one point in time, there was nothing there. Like back in the 1800s, nothing. And then almost at the turn of the century, uh, there was an individual by George P. Colby 
that ended up traveling around the country and, and doing some stuff with uh, mediumship and seances and so forth. Right. And uh, back before the turn of the century, that's when all of this quote-unquote spiritualism was really starting to take effect in society. And lo and behold, I won't get into all the details, but what it comes down to is there was this individual that decided to start and build, I could pretty much say, a miniature, I don't want to say a full-fledged city because it wasn't a city back then, uh, more or less like a little township. And before that, it was literally just an institution of learning uh, where they would have a bunch of different uh buildings and, and locations and, and it got to the point where they uh, were getting into different types of philosophies and, and uh, religion that was going on and, and spiritualism and all these different things. No cult ship. Depending on who you're, you're talking to. Right. And uh, it wasn't the traditional mindsets back then for stuff. And the whole purpose of this location was just to have a place to foster all of these ideals and concepts and teachings and to get people to come there. And very wealthy people would come from all over America to come to this location to learn. And it has fostered an environment of learning ever since. It has brought many collective ideas together. Uh, even to this day, uh, it's full of individuals that are gifted, uh, people that are mediums, uh, people that can potentially have the gift of clairvoyance. Uh, just, I could go on and on and on. Right. I encourage anybody that wants to know about this place, Castadega, Florida, uh, just do a quick search on the internet because I can go a million different ways with this, but the best way is for you to do your own research and see what it says for yourself. Uh, but fast forwarding, why I like this location is because there's just so much to it. There's so much history to it. Uh, a lot of it has to do with energy in the environment. It has to do with what the whole town is about. Uh, what it stands for. And the thing that I appreciate about it is you have so many like-minded individuals congregating and coming to one place. Now, personally, I do not know really of any other place like this in America. Right. And I even still know for a fact to this day, they offer courses, they offer classes, uh, they offer multiple tudes of disciplines of things you can learn depending on if you're gifted or not, or if you want to learn uh, a different modality, there's tons of things you can jump into uh, tons of amazing people that have been doing things for decades that will definitely lend a helping hand if need be if the time's right for you and your life and what's going on with them and so forth. Um, but 
this location, there's just something in the air. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, maybe for somebody that is not, I say this loosely, gifted, that can or cannot maybe feel uh, things in the environment, it might just seem like another day at the park. But uh, the reason why I wanted to start with this location uh, is simply this. I am going to tell you about a particular experience I, I had. And I touched base on this in a, in a different podcast uh, earlier in, in the season. But, uh, and as you know, because you were actually with me for this particular night, uh, mm-hmm. I was part of a, a paranormal group at this time. And, uh, and Dalton was actually in my group. And we were going around to different locations within Casadega and seeing what we could potentially get for activity. And I want to say there was about seven people in the group, maybe, maybe eight total. Something like that. And there was a particular gentleman that had a uh, oxygen canister with him, uh, just because, unfortunately, that was the case for that individual. Uh, let me set the tone, paint the picture. This particular night, it was very, very humid uh, to the point where you're almost like sweaty, wet, walking around. Very, very muggy and hot. Well, that's, it, just, that's just Florida. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't make a difference if you were wearing jeans or shorts or whatever. It, it, it just, it was, it was almost unbearable at some points in time until later in the night it cooled off, luckily. But that's also because it rained a little. <laughs> it did rain a little. <laughs> I remember that. But the air was still thick. So... We were going around to these different locations, and this particular night, uh, we, we touched base on all of the, the main locations that we could uh, in Casadega uh, for walking around. And then we eventually got to a particular area that was further back from the main street, and we were walking around, and then I bring the group to this particular location. And I want you to think of a house, okay? An older house, maybe from the turn of the century of the 1900 uh, to the late 1800s. And you know how, think of it maybe on a farm field or just on a bunch of property with acreage. And it has the concrete steps and then it maybe goes on up. Then you have a wraparound porch and all that. And a door. So we get to this location and it's nothing but a bunch of overgrown woods everywhere and a little beaten path off another beaten path right to a pair of steps, maybe three and a half feet wide at the most, right. maybe about two feet high and uh, maybe two feet wide. And they go to nothing. And to the average individual, you're like, well, what's this about? This looks out of place. Why is this here? You're looking around and you're seeing trees that have easily been there for 60, 70, 80 years, 90 years. And you're like, okay. So as I'm explaining this location to the group, uh, 
as it happens in Florida, uh, depending upon the season and, and what's going on, uh, they do many controlled fire burns, the Forest Service does, uh, or local fire departments, and they do this all throughout America. And I start smelling smoke, so I'm thinking, okay, maybe something's going on at a neighboring county or another location. And for a split second, I'm thinking, well, maybe somebody's also smoking because Smoke travels, and when it is wet outside, it sticks to things. So I'm thinking maybe somebody was smoking in the previous group. So all of these thoughts went through my head in not even 10 seconds. And I've only been standing there with this group as everybody's around me, and I'm kind of in the back middle, maybe the 6 o'clock position. And the steps are directly due north of me by about 4 feet. And... Unfortunately, the gentleman next to me uh, started having a, a, a coughing episode, as he has been all night on his oxygen. And right as he starts coughing, my eyes start burning. Now, not even, what, five seconds prior, I smelt some smoke. So I'm thinking, okay... And this wasn't normal smoke. I remember that. It no, was, no, no. This this wasn't like, normal smoke. It was like some heavy. This like, was this was like a heavy suit smoke. Like standing over right over the campfire. Yeah, smoke. right over a campfire. So so here's the thing. It's about two in the morning. We have some flashlights on. We're talking. The gentleman starts coughing heavily. Unfortunately, with his oxygen on. My eyes start burning. And almost in unison, at the same exact point, as I start coughing, everybody starts coughing in the group at the same time. Now think about that. One person coughs, okay. Two people cough, sure, why not? You know, seven, eight people coughing at the same time? No. And we're not talking like a little cough, like, <laughs> okay, you know, I got tickle in my throat. We're talking like, straight up coughing and gasping for air. Meanwhile, my eyes are burning and I'm also at the point, I'm having tears go down my face and my eyes are stinging. So I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world is happening? You know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, there's a forest fire somewhere and it's reaching because it was windy a little bit. It was rainy some. But my logical part of my brain's going, but it was, it's been raining. So, you know, what, what's going on with that? And I remember looking at Dalton, and Dalton was, was coughing too. And he looked at me, and it dawned on me. I'm looking at these steps that have no foundation to them. And I'm telling the story of Casadega and what was important about these steps. These steps belong to the founder of Casadega himself, okay? This particular location for this house was owned by George P. Colby. Hmm. And why it's so important is all throughout his life, every cent he had, he would always put in to building new buildings, getting more loans, 
to make Casadega what it is. Hmm. I believe, though, there were some kind of foundation blocks there. There, there. there. There were some foundation blocks, but this is why it was so important. Now, urban legend says this, <laughs> with air quotes of my fingers, big. Right. There ended up being an issue with Mr. Kobe and other individuals of Mr. Kobe owing money to. And Mr. Kobe ended up passing away, unfortunately. Hmm. And he had some sons. And the family's thinking, you know, our dad put this place together on the map. He did everything for it his whole life. Right. And then there's money issues, and then everybody's coming after the family. So what do the sons do with the only remaining property asset that the family really owns? What did they do? They ended up burning the whole place down so that way nobody could get a cent out of it. What? That's crazy. And to pay back the debtors. So instead of paying them back, they just burned it down and said, ha ha, you're not getting nothing. Exactly. Wow. So the reason why I bring all this up is this. As I'm telling this story to this group I'm part of, narrating all this, and I'm getting to the point, everybody starts coughing, kind of gasping, tears down everybody's face. The gentleman with the mask on and his air tank, and he's, you know, coughing really, really bad compared to everybody else. And all of this happens in a split second in my brain, and it hit me. We're not smelling forest fire smoke at all. We're not smelling cigarettes. This was one of the first major times in my life that I had something, okay, because I didn't know what. I didn't know if it was a spirit. I didn't know if it was an entity. I didn't know if it was something I can't even put a name on from the other side. But I had something not just showing me but showing seven people in unison what happened at that location. They wanted us to know what was so significant to them in their life, potentially. It could have been the sons. It could be other people from that town at that particular point in time. Or, you know, you could say, depending on what time it was at that night, if that's when they burnt it down, it could have been a residual smell too. Exactly. But my point being is, think about that you can watch shows oh i've been scratched oh i heard something oh i think i saw something i think i saw a shadow and it's always one individual and i'm not knocking it right like TV, I got you. tv shows do their thing it is what it is but, but seven people but seven seven eight people all at the same time had this happen that just blew my mind away I mean, think about that. The amount of energy that would have to be utilized to influence seven to eight people all at once. Well, my question is, did anybody die in these fires? You know, that's the thing. I never got that information. Hmm. That might very well be the case also. But the reason why I bring up this particular story is, one, this was my first real experience of experiencing 
something physically that happened at a location. It's one thing if you hear about a residual, okay? You go to a place and you see the hypothetical lady walking in white and her period dress outfit across, you know, the second floor. Right. Holding, touching the banister, hypothetically. Right. Or you hear the baby cry in the nursery. Or you see the soldier walking across the battlefield. This was completely different. It wasn't visual. It wasn't audible. But it was physical to all of us. And it affected our throat. It affected our chest. It affected our eyes. So that's pretty explosive right there. That's powerful. It is. You know? It's and crazy how, it, how that happened because it's almost like if it's, it's, it's like if the fire was actually going on right then and there and you were just standing in the middle of all that smoke. Exactly. Exactly. And that right there is why I bring up why this was so, so amazing was just because the fact you couldn't imagine this particular experience whatsoever unless it happened to you right then and there. It's just so unplausible. Your brain won't put it together and go, oh, I'm going to go out and do an investigation tonight, hang out with some good friends, and I think we're just going to have seven or eight of us all experience the same thing at the same time. No. Because that's just, that's common. Not. No, it's not common. And even even when we walked out, I believe we walked out, people started to move kind of in a hurry because they were like, they didn't know. They thought the woods were on fire. Yep. And so when we kind of realized that this is, a, you know, an actual paranormal feeling that we're getting, you know, a sense. And we all walked, we finally all got out and walked out the path together. Everybody else was looking at us like, what's wrong with y'all? Because some of them are still, you know, tears running out their eyes and coughing and stuff. And that was the thing that we had to explain to everybody because here's the very sobering thing. For me and Dalton, this is normal to us. I don't want to say you get desensitized, but think about it. To anybody that's sitting there, no matter where you're at, listening to our podcast right now, a friend, a family member, a loved one, whoever says, hey, I'm going to the gas station. Do you need anything? And it's like, no, I'm good. That normalcy contentment of just being asked that simple thing is normal to you. You're not going to think twice about it. Right. It's just going to be a no-brainer. Like, nah, I'm cool. Well, that's how this is for me and Dalton when we investigate. When things happen to us, we're not desensitized, but we're used to it. But We, we get excited. For everybody else, though, that maybe never has done this before that just blows people's mind away and i get it if that was their first time ever doing a paranormal investigation and that was the real real that they just got confronted with i guarantee you there's going to be a come to jesus meeting with that person somewhere along the lines in the next 24 hours of what they will ever do again and what they believe is true or not because you couldn't explain it no. And I'm on the fence of saying if you're privileged, 
to having a paranormal experience because not everybody does. No. You can put two people together, look the same apples to oranges, and it's it's completely different. One person says yes, one person says no. Well, and that comes down to another conversation we'll have at another time, but I mentioned it before where the entities actually can, you know, basically have or let certain people smell things or taste things or do whatever. They they, they kind of almost pick and choose who's going to smell what. So I remember, you know, just off, not off the beaten path too much, but I remember the one investigation we did where let's say you were smelling strawberries and I was smelling grapes. Yep. That's, that's a very unique deal too, where you got two people smelling two different things at the same time. Yep. So, but yeah, that was a, that was a cool thing that all, all of us had that experience together. And for those that there was their first time coming out, that was quite of an experience for them. I'm sure it was. And, and I can, in all sincerity, say this, um, I actually had to have a sidebar with a younger couple that it was their first paranormal experience. And sometimes being a professional investigator, and the reason why I say professional is because there's a major difference between just grabbing a flashlight and having fun. Right. And then really understanding the hows and whys of doing this and having years behind you of tenure and being able to back up what you talk about. Um, but by doing it professionally, I actually was then put in a position to have a sidebar with this couple and talk to them and try to get them to understand a little bit real quick about the paranormal world and get them to realize that what they experienced doesn't happen all the time, but it's not anything they did personally to make that happen to them. No, they were just lucky to be in the presence of a, well, it was Christmas and they got a gift. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, as, as as far as that goes, um, it, it really just depends down on where you're at, what's going on, and if you're privy to it or not. And that's the number one thing about any type of investigation, wherever you go. No matter who you're with, how old you are, what you look like, where you're from, what nationality you are, what language you speak, what you do and don't like about the world, what clothes you're wearing, it does not make a difference. No, the paranormal ain't prejudice against anything. No, no. As you saw, or correction, heard, seven people, eight people... They want to make that happen. They're going to let them know. And I believe it started out where a couple of people were like, what are y'all smelling? You know? And then eventually those people finally all smelled it. Like they kind of just opened their mind a little bit about what was going on. And then, and then everybody, it just hit everybody at once basically. Yep. Sure did. Um, you know, ultimately though, after recollecting everything that happened, that particular night, everything was pretty, pretty quiet, except for one other location that I remember going to. And uh, there was a location on the property, if my memory serves me correct, 
where they had a facility for children. And uh, I'm trying to remember what catastrophic disease it was back then that a lot of kids died from. Well, a lot of times back then it was consumption, tuberculosis. There you go. Tuberculosis, that's right. Yeah. And that particular night also, uh, it was a two-for-two two night for me. I remember specifically uh, I was using a spirit box. Uh, for listeners, you may remember me bringing that up previously. And the whole purpose of the spirit box is you're able to ask questions, do whatever, and it's able to give you feedback live right then and there. But I remember I was talking at this particular point in time to a little girl. I brought something called a trigger object, which is nothing more than an object that may be important or uh, be conducive to producing results in a particular area if it is some sort of value to the entities or spirits that are there. And it doesn't have to necessarily be value. Trigger objects can be... You know, if you're if you're near a daycare or you're dealing with a child like you were, any kind of toy, a ball, a toy truck, something could trigger that child to be like, oh, looky here. You know what I mean? So um, trigger objects could be all kinds of things, different things, and it doesn't necessarily have to pinpoint to one thing. It's just something maybe that, that person or that child or whoever might be interested in and then activity starts. Correct. Um, but for that particular area also, I ended up having a child that was just laughing and, uh, and, and playing, nice. uh, which was really neat. And I was using a flashlight too and watching the flashlight dance on or off and you just hear giggling and, and I would hear the child laughing and, and, and some commotion going on. And then literally not even what eight feet away from me then somebody else would hear the child and then then the child would be heard by another person but all of us were in different locations so it was as if they were running around playing and laughing which also i thought was pretty pretty interesting um because sometimes when you go to investigations you're only gonna hear something maybe once or twice, if you're lucky. But for it to be consistent, that right there in itself is is pretty stellar or epic in my book. Yeah, and you can, when you're hearing it with your own ear, that just uh, goes along the lines of smelling the smoke. Correct. They're building up enough energy to be able to um, produce that. Because you remember what I said about energy, they have to produce it to be able to communicate. Correct. So wasn't there a thing about the Indians or was it some slaves maybe or something that came from South Florida and they were walking up when they were freed? They were walking up to to get out of Florida. Most of them just stopped and camped right there at Casadega. Is that, is that not something, some history to that? I believe that that is also true. So do you think that um, not only the Native Americans in this in the area, but you might have think that uh, some of those folks from the South Florida area might have been um, intuitive and stuff? 
Oh, very much so. Um, <clears throat> it's it's widely known. Individuals with a Native American background descent, uh, the way they've uh, have grown up over the thousands of years, have always been heavily into their spirit guides and, and different uh, uh, individuals of a higher level, depending on uh, which type of, uh, I would say, tribe is, is a safe uh, uh, coining uh, that they're a part of. And it's, it's known that it's individuals are gifted that way. Right. Um, so I, I wouldn't believe not that somebody just did not have that capability. Now these were, uh, Seneca Indians. Uh, you have to tell me that one. You know what the cassid what the word Casadega Casadega actually means in a Seneca Indian meaning? What does it mean there, Dalton? It means water beneath the rocks. Really? Yes, sir. Didn't know if you knew that or not. Actually, I did not. Yes, that's a little history lesson on what actual Casadega means. But it it basically, I didn't really know there was any Seneca Indians here in the state of Florida. So it's kind of hmm. kind of interesting to me too that those were here. So, from what I understand, you have another location for us, don't you? Do we have time? Yeah, we're good on time. We have time. Okay. I do have another location. This would be Perryville Battlefield, again in the Bluegrass State. Good old Perryville Battlefield. That place is like over, I would say over abundance of paranormal activity. There's just so much. A um, little history on Perryville first before I go into the paranormal side of it. The, the Battle of Perryville also known as Battle of Chaplin Hills, was actually fought out. It started, the fight started outside of town, actually. And it was October 7th or 8th, I believe it was, of 1862. Um, it was actually a little bit west of Perryville where Confederate and Union troops met at the same time. Now, this is this is like what they call a critical border state during the war. And you had Buell's Army of Ohio and you had Bragg's Army of Mississippi. And what they were doing is they were looking for water, basically. And it's almost like the... The war, I think, was down here in Florida where they, they all were looking for shoes and they met up at a, a place where they found a, where they were supposed to be a bunch of boots and shoes. And there was actually a skirmish over that <laughs> building for our shoes, basically trying to get shoes. Well, you got to think about it, though, in context back then. Simplicities of life were main staples. If you didn't have the generics of what you needed at the bare minimum, your life was not in a good place. It's not as if you could just go down to the five and dime. And go get it. Or well, to, or, and, 
And a lot of times, too, you figure the Civil War, a lot of them guys, you know, pretty much wore what they had when they left their house, you know, to go fight the war. So as um, Buell's army was in pursuit of Bragg and in in this small crossroad area town, in the, in the small town where the crossroads were, crossroads of Perryville, they had three columns. And the first skirmished ordeal with the Confederate cavalry on the Springfield Pike. Um, this was before the fighting actually became more generalized. So supposedly like a Union soldier fired a shot at the Confederates, and this is what started the whole thing. They were pretty much sitting there kind of watching each other, and they were all trying to just get to this water. And so the fight broke out. You had probably, there were 70, almost 70, a little over 72,000 troops there. Now this is considered to be one of, probably the second bloodiest battle of the Civil War history at that time. Really? The second bloodiest at that time, at that time, hmm. at that moment. So you had probably a little over 72,000 troops. You had like 55,000 plus Union soldiers, and you had just under 17,000 Confederates. Imagine those numbers. Yeah, I don't want to do the math on that. Right. So, But the total of troops that, only, that fought at Perryville, you only had 20,000 Union troops that fought to the 16,000 Confederate troops that fought. Still a little bit outnumbered there. And all that fighting both sides, you had over 21 states, people from 21 states representing soldiers in this conflict. That's a lot of, that's a lot of states. So what happened was the fighting just kept escalating and <clears throat> the troops backed up into the town. And fighting went on inside the town for a while. They, some say there was probably, you know, 1,400 killed. Others say with the wounded that was there and the wounded that died, you know, you're looking at probably 22, 2,300 total people that actually um, died in, at Perryville. The, um, what we were told when we were there, the interesting thing when we were there, when we were told that the Union troops had a hill. Now, this is what were probably the bloodiest part of this battle was fought. You had 7,600 um, dead or wounded, missing in less than four hours. Ooh, that is a, that is a big, big turnaround there. It's a big turnaround. So what happened was the Confederate troops advanced on this hill. From what we were told when we investigated there, if anybody has uh, any any kind of information to lead on this, but I'm just going to tell you what we were told. They can go to the info at theoryparanormal.com and send it to us if they know something else. But this is what we were explained when we were there investigating. So you're, ta the, you're talking about the email address, right? Yes, the email address. Yes. So... The, anyway, the Union troops had this hill, 
and they had probably six, seven cannons up there. And you look across the cornfield. Now, in between um, the two hills, there was a big old cornfield in between both these hills. And the other hill was probably, I don't know, half a mile out or something, quarter mile out. It was just right over, right past the cornfield. Both hills were taken by Union troops. And they had massive cannons on there. So anyway, the Confederates come up to one side of this hill. Now, these Union troops, they had a seasoned um, commander in charge. And I think his name was Stark. I want to say they were, one of the hills was Stark or something, and the other was... Um, Did he have a red and yellow suit on, kind of hovered above everybody? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, that was a joke on I know. Yeah, Iron Man. So There you go. Um, and I think the other one, the other hill... I think was uh, something weather or May or something, not May weather, don't even say it. But um, anyway, so the Confederates were advancing up to this wall. There was a there was like a cobblestone wall down there at the bottom of the hill. Okay. And so they started shooting at each other. Uh-oh. And what happened was the commanding officer was on his horse. And... They thought he was dead, but he like a bullet brazed his head, like skipped off his head or something. It didn't, it didn't land right. It just like grazed him. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So he fell off his horse and knocked himself out, basically. One of those near misses, as they call it. Near misses, right? So the um, the rest of the troops they they've only been from basic training to battle for like four months or something, four or five months. They hadn't. Even, they're they're all rookies. No experience whatsoever. So, of course, when the officer goes down, the next guy in charge is supposed to take over, right? Which could be sergeant or whoever. So, this guy has no experience at all. None. So, they're asking him, basically, um, what do we do? And... What happened was he said, I think he said charge. Uh-oh. So here, here's where stupidity comes into play. You're on a hill. You got cannons. You have the advantage point. So why would you have your troops run down the hill <laughs> to gunfire? So that's what they did. And the Confederate troops actually were able to push the Union troops back over the other side of the hill towards the cornfield, okay? And what they did was they were up top of the hill. They spun the cannons around to the cornfield. Now, I can't tell you why the Union troops on the other hill started firing their cannons into the cornfield without checking out who's on the hill. They just thought those were Union troops firing at Confederate troops that tried to sneak through the cornfield, but actually those were Union troops retreating to the other hill. So hence the 7,600 dead, wounded, or missing at that time because now you got the Confederates firing cannons down from the top of this hill and you got Union soldiers firing from the top of the other hill on top of the other Union soldiers. So also hence the second bloodiest war or the bloodiest battle of the war. Okay. 
Now, when we got there, there was this uh, monument, and it's surrounded by a brick wall, and it's pretty big. It's a pretty big outline of a brick wall, and dead in the middle of it is this Confederate monument. And what we're told is, so after basically the Confederates had a victory there, they wound up having to retreat anyway. So it, it basically gave the Union the border state that they wanted, and they held on to that for the rest of the war. Hence that Frank Saxon, our buddy Frank Saxon from the May Stringer House, fought there, hmm. which is, you know, another deal. But he was wounded at Perryville, and he led a company at Murfreesboro. So he was actually an officer. So, and I believe he fought there, um, I want to say 1860-something. Let's see. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, he, um, so anyway, the, Let's get off Frank Saxon. <laughs> There's so much I want to say about that guy. Right, right. I saw, okay. your, I saw your eyes light up, and you're like, hey, yeah, here, yeah, we yeah, here we go. 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 Right, right. There. All right. So um, so anyway, this uh, this monument, when we rolled up there, is the first thing you see when you roll up there. Well, you see the die house. The die house is an old quarters um, sitting out there. And there was some activity there. You can go on the their Theory Paranormal Facebook page and actually see some evidence from Perryville. Yep. And you'll see my boot sitting there. We Somebody took an outside. One of our old friends that used to investigate with us was there with me and took an outside photo. And hovering over me is this black mass in front. You can clearly see it because I'm standing in front of a white house. So <laughs> What? Wait. All right. Say that again. I, I, I want to hear just a, a little bit slower. Uh, I want to <laughs> process this as you're saying it. Okay, so we we uh, we were investigating. They wouldn't let us go inside the die house at that time. And we were in front of the house, and we were getting EVPs and um, communication. Okay. So I moved closer to the house because I wanted to get up on the porch area and see what kind of evidence I would get getting close to the house, maybe because remember we talked about borders, like there's border lines that some spirits can't cross or they can only go out so far. Yep. I remember you touched base on that before. Right. So, right. <clears throat> I thought maybe if I get up on the porch, being close to the house, that whatever spirits were in the house would be able to come outside and communicate. Well, we didn't realize this until like a couple of days later after the investigation, but I was standing there. All you can see is my left leg from like my knee down in my cowboy boot. Okay. Okay. The rest of me was covered with a black mass, like a black fog. Now in the lower corner of that black mass, all that blackness, which you can say, I didn't feel bad. You know what I mean? You'd think it's a black mass. It would be bad energy or something. I didn't feel bad at all. In fact, I didn't even know that the thing was on top of me. So, but down in the lower corner, here we go again. Guess what was there? What was there? Tell me. A blue orb. 
And what does blue orb mean? I believe we talked about this in our previous <laughs> podcast. That's crazy, man. Uh, so the blue orb member dealt with the uh, orb angel. It was the one that dealt with the uh, the orb angel, right? That's the one I said was, uh, that was the first one I read about the orb angel, right? Correct. Okay. So the uh, simple fact was it's like a psychic energy, basically, I think we were talking about. And protection. I think there was a couple of them we talked about that were protection that were about protection. Um, we talked about the black orb, which didn't make no sense that it was deep energy, dark energy like that. And then turned out to be protection as well. Right. So. Yep. Sounds correct. Yes. So it depends on the color of the blue, I guess, but Basically, psychic energy and truth, okay? So anyway, there was this blue orb. <laughs> now you got me trying to remember. Sounds like a beginning of a joke. Right. There was me and this blue orb there sitting was, in a bar. There was definitely me and a blue orb with a black mass. And so we didn't know it, but this huge mass, just you couldn't see me. You could only see like part of my leg where the mass wasn't. Huh. So anyway... We got some EVPs and we got some other things at the die house. But anyway, to get back to that that barrier wall with the Confederate monument sitting in the middle of it, that was a mass grave, we found out. So what the Union troops did was they took thousands of Confederates, dug one hole, and just threw all these Confederates in a hole. That's sad. Very sad. Very sad. Didn't even have the honor to bury them the proper way. They just took them and threw them in a hole and covered them up. So Perryville um, took it upon themselves to go ahead and outline, you know, I guess this, the, the actual outline of the mass grave. Okay. And uh, blocked it off with a stone wall and then put a uh, Confederate monument dead in the middle of it. Well, that seems proper to give recognition for, for, you know, the, everybody that was there because, at the end of the day, a soldier is a soldier. They fight for the cause, for what they believe in. Everybody has an opinion and difference of bad or good, right or wrong. Right. And uh, either way, they still gave their life. So I believe it's all about proper respect and dignity and uh, giving the proper burial. So you can imagine, you can imagine the, the lives that were lost and the disrespect, how much energy is built up in that place. Oh, yeah. A lot, I can imagine. Right. So we go down to the, we go down there by the cornfield. Okay. We're on top, actually, we're on top of the hill first. And this was a last minute thing. So I didn't have time to go get a, you know, a musket, you know, a real musket or something and dry fire it. So I used cap, <laughs> cap guns. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it worked, believe it or not. So I went down to the bottom of the hill and I come running up the hill like I'm charging and I'm firing off this cap gun. So you just, and, and it's probably good we didn't bring a, 
I wish I would have been able to see that. Yes. I, just just so I can always bring it up and you know, talking points when you don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I was <laughs> playing with my toy cap gun. So um <laughs> so we so I come running back up the hill and I'm firing a cap gun and I'm hollering. Whatever I was hollering. I just made noise. And we stood at the top of the hill and we waited a few minutes and next thing you know, guess what we got? What'd you get? Gunfire back at us. Really? Yeah, you can clearly hear it was musket fire coming from the bottom of the hill. Interesting. And the other interesting thing was when the musket fire kind of stopped, guess what else we heard? What was that? A horse and a carriage coming like it's coming down a cobblestone road. You know that sound? Yes, I do. Okay. Now, there's no cobblestone road out there anymore. It's all dirt roads and paths. So basically, it's all grass out there by that wall. Hmm. But I guess there was an old cobblestone-style road that ran through there, and we had heard a horse and a buggy of some sort coming down that road. Now, that could be an ammunition buggy replenishing the south or whatever. So we went down to the cornfield area, a lot of this evidence, probably all the evidence is on Facebook theory, uh, the Theory of Paranormal Facebook page. A lot of evidence is. Yes, most so, definitely. So I'm not telling you that. You remember I told you I'm not really an orb guy. Yep. I did take a picture of some orbs. Now, this is a clear night. Um, these orbs were moving. You take a photo, they're here. One spot, you take another photo right behind it, and all of a sudden they're over here to the left. So these things are traveling. There's one picture, there's a couple pictures I took where you see the orbs. And then what I did was I looked to the left and I took a photo. Now I'm standing in the same spot, mind you. I didn't move. All I'm doing is going the camera to the right picture, camera to the left picture, camera to the right picture, camera to the left. You understand what I'm saying? No idea. Okay. <laughs> I understand. Okay. So I went to the right, caught these two orbs. Took another photo. I see they moved a little bit. So there's a grass line. Imagine a grass line about waist high, and then where they cut the grass down to make a trail for you to walk down there. Okay, but you still got this waist high grass line on the side. Right. So that way you can see, obviously, which way are the walking trails and which way is right, the other trail. Right, because you're out there at night, and right. we hardly use flashlights to see where we go because we just don't. But anyway, probably stupid of us, but... Anyway, so these orbs were by this grass line, and the next picture I took, they were a little further out. So I said, okay. I took another photo, and they disappeared. Say what? Yeah, they were gone. So they now, were there one minute, gone the next, just like that. Right. So I took three photos standing there in the same spot in the same place. I didn't turn left yet, okay? So I figured they moved to the left, so that's when I started going left. I went left, took a photo, didn't see anything. Come back right, took a photo, didn't see anything. Come back left, took a photo, didn't see anything. I come back right and took a photo, and guess what? There is a face that pops up in the right top corner of the camera. So you know I got this little, the little pocket cameras, and it's got the screen in the back so you can see what the photo looks like. And I thought it was... And, and from looking at the screen, I thought maybe it was just another orb, but then I held it up closer to get a good look at it, and it was a face 
Clearface. It's on Facebook. Clearface of this this uh, face. <laughs> I can't describe it anymore. So we take some more photos. We're getting flashlight bumps. We're getting K2 bumps. And, and, and by bumps, you mean you're getting activity on those Yes. Items. Okay. Yeah, like they're bumping the flashlight, shining it off, turning it off when we ask. They're doing exactly. They're turn, taking the K2 and running it up through the green up until the, the orange or yellow, whichever K2 you got. Um, and they're just, you know, they're they're playing along. So we start taking more photos. Probably the most eeriest photo that we got out there was we took a photo and you can actually see this soldier on the ground on his hands and knees. You can depict where the hands are crossed. Imagine being on your hands and knees and you're walking. So your hands would be crossed. Yep. Okay. So his hands were crossed. His knee was this, you know, he's on his knees. You can, you can literally go down his backside to his thighs, to his calves, to his feet. You can outline the whole thing. And his pants were green. Okay. Which means they were blue. You know how you take a flash to something blue and sometimes it turns green in the in the camera with the flash. Yes. Okay, so that's how we knew that was a Union soldier on the ground crawling. Oh, I see what you're doing here. Interesting, interesting. Right. And faintly, um, standing above him, if you blow it up good enough and you can get a clear shot of it and blow it up right, you can almost see what it looks like to be another soldier standing over top of him coming down on, on his backside with a rifle in his hand. So that was pretty cool. That is pretty neat because obviously it sets the tone and pace for where you're at. It's something that obviously happened a long, long time ago. And I mean, that's why you're there to, if you're lucky enough, as I say, privileged enough to get some activity and to actually be the individual to have some visual or seeing you know, with your eyes or your ears listening, something, rather it's physically or through a camera or a video camera. Right. And, and, and then hearing the, re, it, you'd almost want to say, was it residual cannon fire that we heard musket fire? Now the musket fire we heard, that was, I believe that was intelligent. I came running up and down the hill, firing a cap gun at him. Like I was in the, in the battle itself. And within just a couple minutes, we got returned musket fire, and it was coming from the bottom of that hill by that brick wall. Really? Yeah. So if that was residual, I don't think it would have done what it did right after I started firing that cap gun. Hmm. So, but we did off and on through the night, and this is one of the uh, this is one of the the. Um, encounters that people that there's people that still actually live around that battlefield. So we get, when you go out and investigate there, you kind of got to be quiet. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so I'm not going to name the group, but that group went out there and they fired off a couple muskets, you know, no ball, just powder. And that's what I want to do next time is take a musket out there and dry fire it and see. Oh, gosh, you go ahead and do that, and it'd be on an off day, and next thing you know, you're hearing fire all over the place, you know, and you're like, right. it's like a swarm of bees all of a sudden. You're running around with your hands up going, it's not me, it's not me, right. <laughs> running off. <laughs> but here's the thing. I got I got fired just using a cap gun, 
And then all night, every now and then, you would hear cannon fire from the distance. You'd hear cannons go off. And that's one of the things that the residents that stay around that battlefield talk about, that, that they could just get up in the middle of the night and hear thumps, cannon fires going off. Yeah. That's a lot to, that's, that's a lot to contend with. It is, you know, just for the average person to be just doing their thing. And it's just like a battle still going on, apparently. And and that's what they say about most of the bloody battlefields. Most of them that were very bloody like that, 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 that conflict, that battle is still going on. You know what I mean? Yes. So that's also where the, um, the spirits got on me so heavy that I was about ready to look like I was going to fall out. Now here's, we talked about that, that there's pictures of there too, of those, those mist, you know, them big mist forms coming off my backside. Oh, I remember that photo. I yeah. remember. Cause after we did the review and I was like, really what's going on here? Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's like four or five photos like that. Mm-hmm. Here's a photo we did not take. And I don't know why I think our buddy did, but he never shared it. Mm. But guess what night it was too. What night was it? The blood moon. The blood moon. What can you tell us about that? <laughs> That's another conversation, bro. <laughs> but look up blood moon on the interwebs. Yes. You'll find lots of information about it, listeners. But the blood moon happened that night. It was the first time our buddy that used to investigate with us, it was the first time he ever seen one in person. And it was full. Wow. And it was so big, it looked like somebody pulled the moon into the battlefield. That's how big it was. It was just a big blood moon, which was pretty cool. I thought that was pretty cool. So Perryville, <clears throat> a lot of death there, a lot of energy. And it was just over water, basically. It was a fight over water. So a lot of lives lost there. But... We definitely got to go check that place back out, though. Some some people that have gone out there, they've gotten uh, flurs, you know, images, thermal images from hmm. the flur. People that don't know what a flur is, it's a thermal camera. Okay. It's another tool that investigators use, basically used to find AC duct leaks or hot spots in cold areas and stuff like that. But another group, not going to mention their name, but they caught a good flur image. Something kept walking in front of the flur, and every time they turned the flur that direction, it wouldn't be there. But they'd be standing there, and it like it would kind of walk back through it again. And so they would try to catch a full. It was like dodging the flur, basically. <laughs> <It was> like <laughs> jumping around. Yeah, it was like it's crazy. But and that is pretty interesting, though. It's like it's like almost as if they anticipated where it was going to be before it got there. Yeah, because they only caught like uh, a part of it. Hmm. And so it was basically, I think some of the EVPs we got were kind of basically just gunfire and stuff. There wasn't, I don't think there was a whole lot of chatter going on there. Hmm. But definitely a lot of good evidence there. It sounds like it. Definitely a lot of good evidence. Very. Very interesting place, I'll tell you that much. And it's big, too. I think it's, like, left on 10 acres or something. Wow. That is that is still a uh, fair amount of, of acreage there. Yes. So 
Imagine being out there at night, can't see nothing, and you're trying to figure out where these <laughs> where these main battles were. Mm. That would be very questionable, especially if it was a full moon or if it was cloudy. Nope, full blood moon, clear night. And one thing I never tried to think about was reptiles, including snakes, being out there. I just put that all aside and went out there and walked. Yep, Dalton does not like spiders. He will let you know from the shriek far, far away. I don't mind the spiders. The snakes I don't like. Okay, let me rephrase that. Dalton does not like snakes. You will hear the shriek from far, far away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, I, I don't like snakes either, so. I don't like things that can creep up on me and I don't see it coming. That's why I don't swim in the ocean. Doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, well, Perryville Battlefield, man, if anybody is interested in that to try to um, want to want more information about it, I feel I would say feel free to go look Perryville Battlefield up and check check some of the history on it. It's 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 one of the bloodiest battles ever fought. And again, it was fought pretty much over over water. So interesting, interesting. And besides that, it was a border state. I mean, it was a critical border state of Kentucky that the uh, the Union retained control of, like I said before, for the rest of the war. But I believe it was because what I was researching when I was there is because of the supply of water that it gave. They actually took, and the Confederates. They they had the victory there, and don't really know why they actually retreated hmm. during the nighttime. The Confederate retreated by way of the Cumberland Gap. Never you ever heard of the Cumberland Gap? No. What is that? It's a big mountain. Okay. Where's it at? It's in Kentucky. In Kentucky. Yeah, we drive. I drive over it all the time. Okay. On the road, so there you go. But um, anyway. Any questions about Perryville you want to ask her? No, I think that was pretty well-rounded. You painted the picture real good. You let us know exactly what was going on, what you liked about it, you know, some of your experience, and a little bit of the history. You know, you can't really uh, get more than that except being there in person. Yep. So definitely appreciate the uh, insight on it. Cool, man. I just uh, kind of a quick, quick rundown of Perryville, but, yes, one of my, again, Civil War. Yep. Uh, so was Octagon Hall. Um, huge on that. I'm huge on the Civil War. Nice, so. nice. And and why? What's your connection to this to the Civil War? I'm I, I'm gonna put you on the limelight there. Um, the, the spotlight. Like I said before, my dad told me that my fifth greatest uncle was Ulysses S. Grant. There you go. And uh, now you're uh, insta famous. Yeah, but. <laughs> I checked it out. I mean, I didn't check the family tree or nothing, but I did talk to some liable resources in the family, and they all can, you know, concur that, you know, Grant, you know, was related. So, um, like I said, it puts my interest of the Civil War about 200%. I want to learn as much as I can about it. And there's still a lot of battles that I don't know about, but I'm steady every now and then. When I get bored, I'll look them up and research them. Well, I'm one of the biggest proponents that I personally know of constantly learning. doesn't make a difference if I already know the subject. I'll still dive in. If there's something on documentaries, I'll still play it just to see if there's something new or different I missed from last time. 
you know, constant evolution of always going forward. Always constant. Always constant. Well, this is going to conclude episode six of Theory of Paranormals podcast. Well, I hope um, everybody kind of understood this is like a free-for-all thing. We just we, we were on topic for all the other ones, and we just kind of got off topic and just had a little kind of a little discussion about some things we've done and and uh, activity and experiences that we experienced at these places. Yep, yep. We just wanted to get a little bit more up close and personal instead of having to let you hear a whole podcast just so you can hear the last few minutes of going, this is where we were and this is what happened. Because that way you're just like, really? What do you know about that? What do you know about that? <laughs> <laughs> We got to do the blood moon, though, which was actually, you know, it's actually a lunar eclipse. So there you go. But the blood moon prophecies are, you know, I think there's something behind that. We'll have to talk about that one day. Just maybe we will. And the and the orb angel. So if any of our listeners are listening and you have any questions about anything we said, any comments or concerns, or if you have any questions in general of things of a paranormal nature or about equipment, or if you have questions of us, feel free to email us at info at theoryparanormal.com and we'll be sure to get back to you. And if you have any ideas of what you might want us to talk about. We're, you, we're always open to suggestions. Yeah, if you got a question about the paranormal that you might want answered or you got a subject of the paranormal that you might want us to talk about, uh, we can clearly probably take the time. In fact, I know we'll take the time and and pretty much make that podcast about your subject that you want us to talk about or any questions. Yep, yep, yep. We are all about fostering an environment to help you learn about the paranormal and uh, bring it to you blunt and honest. So that is all the time we have. And as always... Don't be afraid to ask questions.